Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Daniel, again. Um, we're reading in chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. If you want to follow along, I'm reading in the English Standard Version. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent, a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, our God, by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all those around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. 
Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our plea before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. This is the word of the Lord. The year that Daniel was deported to Babylon as a teenager, 605 B.C., was also the year that the prophet, an older man by now, uh, the prophet Jeremiah in Jerusalem declared these words, speaking the words of the Lord, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity. Fast forward to the time that is recorded here in Daniel chapter 9. It's now 539 BC. It's 66 years later. Daniel isn't a teenager anymore. He's an old man. He's been living as a refugee in a foreign place with a government job. Quite, quite a distinguished career as an exile. 539 BC, the year that the Persians and the Medes conquered the Babylonians. And Daniel, by reading the books of the law and by reading the writings of the prophet Jeremiah from just the century before, discovers that those 70 years prophesied by Jeremiah were almost up. They were drawing near. And that realization drove him to his knees in fervent, foodless, ashy, um, you know, sackcloth-wearing prayer. He just puts himself on his knees and covers himself in ashes and sackcloth and doesn't eat and just prays to his God. Now, we've been, for the last several weeks, following through the book of Daniel, we've discovered that this amazing Old Testament book, which, which combines historical narratives of Daniel and his friends and their lives with apocalyptic, highly symbolic language, what we've discovered is that this book is a witness for how people of faith, people who are trying to follow this God of Daniel, the, the God of the Bible, how they can flourish in very challenging environments, even where, where the system and the culture and the people around them are not sympathetic to their faith, to their belief system, uh, and to how their faith calls them to live every day. And we've watched how Daniel and his three friends have persevered respectfully persevered despite all the wrongs done against them, right? But here today, we're going to see something different. We're going to see how Daniel reflects upon the wrongs done by his own people. We discover here that Daniel sees himself not only as a 6th century refugee. He sees himself as a part of a much larger and older story. Daniel, in this prayer, takes personal responsibility for the sins of his ancestors. If you want to know something about how you view your relationship with your Creator, be a fly on the wall while you're praying. Think about your prayer life and how you pray. It says a lot about how you relate to God. 
And what we discover here in this amazing prayer is that Daniel saw himself as a part of a larger, older story. Now, I think most of us would agree that we're living in in a society that is right now and has been wrestling with uh, what to do with the ugly chapters of its history. And people have different opinions, and there's a lot of disagreement and polarization and angst and distress and anxiety over all of that. Uh, What to do with the ugly chapters of its past. But I can't speak for you. I can speak for me, and I think for most of us as growing up in a Western country that uh, we typically think this way. I am not to blame for what I haven't done. Don't blame me for the things I haven't said and the things that I haven't done or the things that I wasn't around for. That's typically the way we think in the West. We're kind of individuals and we don't like being blamed for what we haven't done or said, Uh, nor do we tend to blame people for what they haven't done or said. Eastern thinking doesn't quite work that way historically. Uh, There's much more of a sense of community and solidarity. Uh, And we see that here in Daniel's prayer. But it's not just an Eastern thing, it's also a biblical thing. And so we're going to look at that today. And what I hope you're going to see from Daniel's prayer, we kind of take a pause here in all of these amazing visions that Daniel's been having. We pause before we get to the next vision to just look at his amazing prayer. And I think what we're going to see today is that the Christian, if you're a follower of this God, in light of Jesus Christ, who would come centuries after Daniel, that the Christian need not ignore the sins of the past, whether they are personal or from the family or from the community in which you live or from your church or the church in general. The Christian need not ignore the sins of the past because God's grace covers them, forgives them, reconciles them, and doesn't put you on them, doesn't put them on you anymore. And as I unpack that statement, I want to address three things. First, Daniel's sins, how he saw his sins and the sins of his people. And then I want to talk about our own sins. And then finally, if you can believe it, God's sins. The sins of Daniel and his people, the sins of us, our sins, your sins, and the sins of God. Don't worry. I'll, if you're uncomfortable, I'll, I'll get to it. I'll explain it. I'll, re- I'll resolve that. Just give me another 25 minutes or so. The sins that Daniel confessed in this prayer were not only personal, but they were corporate. They are on behalf of others. That's primarily what this prayer was, not personal. Of course, he wasn't perfect. If you keep reading in the second part of Daniel chapter 9, he, he brings it up that he was confessing his own sins as well. But the emphasis here is not personal, but corporate. And there's a threefold confession that we see in the first 19 verses of Daniel chapter 9. In three ways, Daniel expresses his sorrow. Remember, he's not eating, and he's dumped ashes on his head in tradition, and he's wearing sackcloth. And in all of that, he said there are three elements to his confession. The first thing he does is he confesses that the people of Israel had abandoned God's laws to love God, to love their neighbor to pursue righteousness, and to do justice. And he says in verse 5, we, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments 
and rules. He goes on to say that they, Israel and Judah, they had ignored the prophets who had been warning them for centuries that God's justice, God's discipline was coming if they didn't change their ways. So he says in verse 6, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. You see what he does? He says, at, at every level of our society, we have rejected you. And he goes on. He says, this is very interesting. He says that at least to some degree, even after almost 70 years, they had still not heeded the lesson of discipline. They had still not learned. He says in verse 13, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. And so, in sorrow, Daniel acknowledges their predicament as a people. He acknowledges the results of all of that sin. He says in verse 16, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. The word byword in the original Hebrew language or Aramaic language there, it, it means to be reproached. It means to be scorned by others. What he's saying is that we have a bad reputation now. It's an important part of making an honest and true confession. Not just stating the facts, but owning the consequences. That's a real confession. Not just saying what you've done, but accepting the consequences for it. But then Daniel pleads for mercy. He expresses his sorrow in three ways, but then he pleads for God's mercy and forgiveness in this beautiful, I think it's the most, uh, one of the most poetic and robust corporate uh, confessions of prayer in the Bible. He says, he summarizes it in verse 19. He concludes, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay. De oh, delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Notice how his confession and his plea, okay? His confession of sin and his plea for forgiveness is corporate. It's spoken on behalf of all. The interesting thing about this, though, is Daniel, to our knowledge, wasn't a priest, wasn't from a priestly family, and certainly in exile, living in a, in, a, in a pagan society that did not honor his God. He's not commissioned as any kind of a priest or a professional cleric. He's a government official, right? He's, he's working in government. He's, he's not recognized as, as a priest, somebody to represent God on behalf of the people. That's not his job. And we know by his age, he was a, he was a kid when all of this horrible stuff was happening in Judah and Jerusalem and Israel. So he's, he was too young historically to, to have committed all of the sins that he's here confessing. But he owned centuries of Israel's sin as his own. Whereas he knew that he was individually impeccable, right? His individual rep reputation was impeccable. You know that. He knows that, right? What did, what did he say to Darius when he was delivered from the lion's dens? He said, I have done no wrong, O king. He knows. He knows he's not guilty. But he is guilty by association. 
That's what you see in this prayer. Although this is a man of impeccable reputation and admirable exemplary righteousness as an individual, he realizes that by association, he's guilty. Now, this isn't normal, is it? You don't see powerful, I, I, I don't see powerful, influential people in our world admit to wrongs they haven't done, show remorse and assume guilt for wrongs they haven't done. Most of them don't admit and show remorse for the wrongs they have done, especially not the ones they haven't. The types of sin that we confess, if you're a Christian, the types of sin that we confess must, I believe, mature from a mine mentality to an hours mentality. The prophet Nehemiah, uh, actually the, 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 the government worker Nehemiah, a century after Daniel, who also worked for the Persian government, said this in his own prayer and fasting, we have sinned against you, O God, even I and my father's house have sinned. So you see right there, the corporate and the personal and the familial as well, all wrapped up in Nehemiah's prayer. We see in these old prophets and these old saints that before a holy God, no individual, no family, no people group or society has clean hands. They saw that. It was a part of the way they looked at the world, part of the way they looked at their personal and their corporate history. And in the New Testament, but in a different way, you see this theme continue, although the people of God expanded beyond one ethnic and national group. It was no longer just Jews. It was Jews and Gentiles, people of all ethnicities and languages and, and cultures throughout the world became what we now call the early church in the first and second centuries and third centuries AD. And what we see in the early church is, is sort of a... Um, um, a for better or for worse corporate mentality. They were stuck together for better or for worse. And you see that represented in the Apostle Paul's writings when he calls the church a body, that the church functions as a united body with many parts. And, and one of the interesting th things he says about that body mentality is if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And I think the reverse of that is true. If one member is dishonored, all together are dishonored. When our book of church order in our denomination talks about the peace and purity of the church, we're talking about the reputation of the people of God, which you and I malign and dirty based on our own behavior when we're not at our best, and often, you know, when we're at our worst. So you see that concept continue in the New Testament. So my, my really, my takeaway for us today, as we look at this amazing prayer from Daniel, is to see ourselves as part of a much larger story, a much older story, and when we see ugly things in that story, cling to God's grace, cling to his promise of forgiveness, to not just forgive individuals, but to forgive his people. Several years ago, um, if you were with us in the very early days, you may remember me talking about this. In the year 2015, you know, our denomination has a, an annual general assembly once a year. 
and the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America in 2015, uh, that was a year in which um, we discussed, as a denomination, discussed and debated how, how we as a, as, a, as a national church uh, need to um, further discuss and address and amend ways that racism and slavery and segregation were historically supported in certain branches of our denomination. Um, and, and actually, it, was a, it went in, this conversation, you know, one or 2,000 people there, this conversation went long into the night. Uh, it was almost midnight, and there, you know, there, just imagine a convention center with several microphones, and if you want to speak, if you want to give input, uh, you stand in line at one of the microphones, and the moderator, uh, he, he'll be like, uh, microphone three, microphone nine. I think I was at you know, one of those microphones near the back, and I had been standing there for quite a while, and, and I was the last person in line to offer some input. And it was the moderator said, okay, we're done. We, we need to round things up. Uh, the last person at number nine, would you pray for us? <laughs> so I prayed. And I prayed these words. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. I prayed the closing words of Daniel's prayer. More than that, uh, the, the, whole, the whole closing section. Because your church and your people are called by your name, Father. Heal us, forgive us, and act. You know, I'm going to be honest. I, I grew up, I grew up, I don't, I don't know, Maryland is kind of not really claimed by the north or the south. Um, I grew up in the north. You know, and, 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 in, and as a kid in school, you know, we were taught those southerners and their segregation, and those Southerners and their slavery, and, and aren't we glad that we weren't a part of that back then? And that's how I was raised, to kind of remove myself morally and personally from the problems of, of our society's past. But you know, I became an adult, and I got ordained in a denomination that does have dirt on its hands, blood on its hands from the past in that area of, uh, of, of our society's history. And, and as an adult and as a Christian, not just as a pastor, but as a Christian, I've had to wrestle with that. You know, I've had to, I've had to think about those things. And um, the prayer of Daniel has really helped me over the years. Realize that for the Christian, it's safe to rely on the mercies of God and take ownership of things that you have not personally done, but that a group of people that you associate with may have done in the past. The prayer of Daniel helped me begin to see these things more broadly and realize that I'm part of a story, whether I want to be or not, I'm part of a story that goes far back beyond my personal experience and decisions. Now, if you think that I'm being political, listen. I'm not. I'm being biblical. I'm showing you what Daniel himself did. Now, it's true. America is not ancient Israel. It's not analogous to ancient Israel. Israel was a unique geopolitical theocracy. And if you believe that good, you've been paying attention for the last several months. But the church, I'm not talking about America. 
Forget, forget that right now. Let's talk about the church. The church is analogous to ancient Israel. The church is, according to the New Testament authors, the new Israel. The church, according to the Apostle Peter, is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Therefore, it is within the purview of any Christian, it is within the calling and the responsibility of any Christian living in any era, in any place in the world, to confess and make right the sins of their spiritual ancestors. Their story is our story. Maybe that's the legacy of Daniel's famous prayer. Their story is our story. What erases our connection to the past, I think, is denial. And I want to suggest two forms of denial that people typically commit. There's the denial of remorse. What I mean by denying remorse is, is to diminish or downplay or excuse the sins of the past and in a sense, by doing that, continuing to neglect ongoing hurts. Because people have a memory of what's happened in the past. So there's the denial of remorse where a lack of remorse leads to downplaying the sins of the past and ignoring that they have present day ramifications. And you know, when we do that without a biblical foundation, uh, uh, we're in danger of um, adopting concepts like conservatism, which lead us to thinking in non-biblical ways. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with being a conservative in America, but if you embrace conservatism without a biblical foundation, I would suggest you are dangerous of moving in the direction of the denial of remorse in your life. On the other hand, there's another type of denial I think it's the denial of grace. The denial of grace is to obsess over the sins of the past, to want to punish people for past sins, and to seek reparation without forgiveness. I think, likewise, without a biblical foundation, that is where progressivism will lead you. There's nothing wrong with being a progressive, but without a biblical foundation... You begin to demand reconciliation without caring about forgiveness. Perhaps the reason why the church in our society is so confused and turmoil is because half of us can't show remorse and half of us can't show grace. Now, if your backs are up, if your backs are up before you send me emails, before you text me and call me and talk, and we can do all those things. It's been happening for the last year and a half, and it's going to keep happening, and that's okay. But before you do it, before you reach out to me, read this again. I'm going to ask you, read this again. And notice, consider that Daniel's prayer doesn't resemble any of that. Daniel had room in his story for remorse and for grace remorse for the sins of his own people 
and grace for the sins of the Babylonians. The proof of his grace for the sins of the Babylonians is the last eight chapters of how he lived his life as they oppressed him. There is room in your story, if you're a Christian, for both remorse and grace. Christians have a reason to be free um, from the fear of not wanting to show remorse and liberated from the pride that leads to showing no grace. Christians have a reason to be free of all of this because of what our God has done. Let me give you an example, just an illustration of what God has actually accomplished. If you're a refugee um, from, frankly, anywhere in the world, but you happen to find yourself in Central Europe and come upon the oasis outside of Vienna, Austria, we're going to hear all about this in the next couple of weeks, actually. If you find yourself as a refugee from North Africa or the Middle East or parts of Asia, and you're in the oasis on a given day, you've been invited in by Christians, um, you may find yourself sitting at a table drinking tea or coffee or playing chess or a board game with someone whose ancestors subjugated your ancestors. You might, find, you might find yourself sitting at a table with someone whose own government ejected you, persecuted you, kicked you out, wanted you dead, which is why you're here across the world. You may be the person you're playing chess with or drinking coffee with. Uh, when, when Becky and I were there years ago, um, I overheard a conversation, just such a conversation. Now, it was in Farsi, so it later had to be translated to me. Um, two women, one an Afghani, an Afghan refugee, another an Iranian-born European citizen. And these two women were talking, and what we discovered after, after the fact was that the Afghan woman had escaped Afghanistan, had to flee with her family for her life, and along her journey from Iran, passing through Iran, ultimately uh, to get to the Mediterranean and then, and then to Central Europe, her husband was killed in Iran by Iranians. And as they continue, now she has five kids and she's trying to bring them across the world to find a sanctuary, asylum somewhere. Uh, her oldest child, a son, drowned in a river. And this woman arrives in Central Europe with no place to go, looking for sanctuary, looking for asylum with four children, has lost her husband, has lost her oldest child, and is about to lose her mind clinically. And she's sitting across the table from an Iranian-born European citizen hearing her story. And I remember, I, I, had to, I didn't know the words at the time, but I remember the Iranian-born woman who, is a, who was a Christian, in tears, asking the Afghan refugee for forgiveness, who said to this woman who lost her husband, who had lost her son, on behalf of my people, would you forgive me for the death of your husband? That is an example of corporate solidarity and ownership expressed in Christian love, and humility. That is the witness of Daniel, 
who was in that country over 2,000 years ago. Now, we might say she didn't really have to own those things. She didn't have to own that murder, that unfortunate death. She didn't have to own any of that. Well, neither did Jesus have to own your sins on the cross. The beauty of Christianity, I think, for our purposes today is captured by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 who said, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Can you just pause for a second and think of the cosmic weight of that phrase that he who had no sin became sin. Can you appreciate that? That Jesus who had committed no act of treason, no act of treachery, no act of selfishness or pride would hang on a cross and take your sin and take my sin and take the sins of the world, none of which he had committed, take them upon himself and say, these are mine. On behalf of my people, I will take these sins to the cross. The greatest injustice and the greatest mercy of all history was God's son crucified for sins he never committed. And when that, when that ugly, beautiful event becomes part of your story, your perspective begins to change, doesn't it? When that becomes a part of your story, the best part of your story, the climax of your story, well, now you're free to confess your own sins. You're free to take responsibility even for sins you didn't commit, but somehow have been associated with you. You have the freedom to confess them because they've already been taken to the cross and you don't carry them anymore. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. It doesn't matter what people think. You are free to confess them because they have been dealt with on the cross. And if they haven't yet been dealt with, you know, if, if, if the person who somehow represented you and isn't forgiven by God because they refuse to repent. Well, you know what? Jesus is going to deal with those sins when he comes back. One way or another, those sins are going to be dealt with. So you have the freedom to confess and, and repair and make things right. You don't have to live in denial. You don't have to be afraid of being associated with certain people or certain sins or certain acts. Because Jesus and his grace covers them. And you can liberate yourself from the pride of self-righteousness that refuses to forgive others for what they've done to you or what they've done to your family or what they've done to your friend or your coworker. Only the gospel does this. Only the gospel and the message and the story of Jesus Christ crucified for you, only that gives us the freedom to be people of remorse and people of grace. Daniel's prayer still guides us today as we discover the ugliness of our own past at every level of life, personal, familial, community, 
ethnic, national, whatever the story may be. Daniel's prayer offers us real wisdom and hope as he says in verse 18, and if you forget everything today, don't forget this. This is the heart of Christianity mentioned in this ancient 2,500-year-old prayer. For we do not present our pleas before you, God, because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. That is it. If you want to know what Christianity is, it's that. We don't do anything. We don't make anything right. We don't confess any sin. We don't forgive anything because of our own righteousness. We don't have it. You don't have it. Daniel, look at Daniel. You think you're as, as, as squeaky clean as Daniel? Even he knew that he didn't have the righteousness. The reason we confess our sins, the reason, the reason we ask for forgiveness, not only to our creator, but to one another, to people we've hurt, to people who for some reason have a problem with us, regardless of what we've done. The reason we make peace, the reason we make things right is because of God's great mercy. That's what drove Daniel to his knees. He read the book of Jeremiah. He read the law of Moses and he thought this God is a God of mercy and forgiveness so I can run to him and ask for forgiveness on behalf of my people. Not because of us, but because of him. And I think the American church and this church, and I think this society as it continues to move away from a sense of, of godliness and objective truth, I think it desperately needs Christians who think this way, not because of our righteousness, but because of God's great mercy. Do we exist and pray and try and be a helpful, redeeming presence in our community and in our families and in our society. The Christian does not need to ignore the sins of the past at every level because the grace of God covers them. That is an historical fact, and it is also a promise. A historical fact and a future promise. The grace of God covers them. And you don't need to be afraid, and you certainly need not live in pride. Remorse and grace. Hi, everybody. My name is Brian Lopiccolo, and I'm a huge sinner. And this is where you all say, hi, Brian. You did it. Thank you. Thank you. You get the participation award. That needs to be the story of our lives. Hi, my name is Brian Lopiccolo, and I'm a really big sinner, but in the words of John Newton, but Christ was a great Savior. I was a great sinner, he said, but Christ was a great Savior. That's my story. That's the biggest, I'll give you all the details, but that's my story. And so I have the freedom to show remorse. And I have the humility to show grace. What part are you lacking in your life right now, in your relationship with the people around you, in your relationship as a part of a broader church, as your relationship uh, with a society in which you are uh, a citizen? Where are you lacking in remorse or grace? See yourself. 
Let's see ourselves as part of a much larger and older story. And then when we see the ugliness of chapters of that story, cling to the grace and the mercy of God as Daniel did. It was only years, not even years, like a year after this amazing prayer that Cyrus the Great of Persia announced his plans to let some of the Jews back to begin rebuilding the temple. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And here is Daniel, whom we have no evidence of him ever returning to his homeland. I think he stayed as an old man in, Jew, in, in, in Babylon. Daniel, on behalf of his people, Daniel, on behalf of this temple that he would never see, Daniel saying, Lord, forgive us, forgive us for the sake of your name and your reputation. Forgive us. Remorse, my friends, and grace. Because of Jesus, we can show both. We can offer both. Let's pray. Father, we are, uh, we are challenged by this ancient prayer. Who would have ever thought that something prayed in private almost 3,000 years ago would hit us square between the eyes today? And yet it does, Father. Forgive us for denying the ugliness of our past because of our fear. Forgive us for denying grace to those who need it. And we ask that you would help us in humility and retrospection. See that your grace covers all that's been done in the past, all that embarrasses us, all that, if, that frustrates us, all that enrages us or confuses us. Father, thank you that your grace is greater than our sin. Help us to live in the freedom of Jesus that allows us to own the past because we've been forgiven and offer grace that leads us into the future. Amen.